You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Rebecca Blank, Chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's served in that role since 2013, and prior to that, during the Obama administration, she served at the Department of Commerce as the Acting Secretary, the Deputy Secretary, and the Undersecretary for Economic Affairs. A senior economist, she served as a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and as, a, and as Dean of the Gerald Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. She also served as a member of the Council of Economic Advisors for President Clinton. We're thrilled to have her with us today. In full disclosure, I've completed my PhD in political science at the University of Wisconsin in the late 80s. I currently serve on the advisory board for the University of Wisconsin-Madison's International Division, and my wife and daughter are each proud graduates of the University of Wisconsin. We're delighted to have you with us here, Chancellor. Thank you for making the time. I want to start with saying, you know, you've eloquently and very honestly described for us what the University of Wisconsin has just been through in this last pretty rough six months. You described it in a recent video address to the community as a very strange fall beset by multiple crises, COVID-19, the budget woes and intensified calls for, for racial justice. You put in several measures that have successfully restabilized things, though the situation remains quite fragile. And the hope is that these measures hold and the university is able to carry forward successfully until students depart campus at Thanksgiving. But before we get into this, you've been living this 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 series of interlocking crises around centered on on COVID-19. I wanted to just ask you a question. How did you respond recently when we had this startling news that our president had contracted the virus, the first lady, a number of others within the White House? I think the numbers infected are over 34 at the moment. And now we've got the president out campaigning in the Midwest, in your neighborhood, in the red zone in Iowa, and perhaps this weekend in Wisconsin, according to today's Washington Post. How did you react to that, given where you sit and what you've just been through? Well, you know, of course, I wish President Trump and his wife and everyone from the White House a full and complete recovery. This virus is not a joke. And, you know, you want everyone to get over it as soon and as fully as they can. Um, I think the biggest question that this raises is the question, what can we as a university learn from the White House testing strategy, which was daily tests for everyone, which seems like a very complete strategy. And I think the uh, most important lesson there is that the tests alone are not enough. So for instance, in our athletic program, we are now doing daily testing of our athletes, but we are also imposing all of the behavioral protocols. They have to mask, they have to socially distance, except in a few very occasional circumstances when they're on the field and in a situation where social distancing is not possible, they have to be following all the other health protocols. And I think it simply reinforces that message that you know there's no one single strategy here. It's got to be testing, it's got to be behavioral change, all of those things together, if you're going to try to keep control over this virus. Thank you. I want to begin by asking you to focus on the events of September. You had a sudden spike of cases as students came back on campus. 
about 3,000 of big days like September 9th, over 400. And as you've just described it, this spike moved higher and faster than anyone had ever expected. It was concentrated in the freshman dorms and in some fraternities and sororities, and it, it really exceeded the rises in other large peer institutions. What happened, do you think? So, you know, we had done a lot of preparation. We had what I thought was quite a good testing strategy, and that actually turned out to be quite important because we picked up that spike almost immediately. Had we had less testing, it could have been even worse. You know, we were still trying to deconstruct what we think happened. We tested everyone who came into the dorms, and they'd all arrived a week ago. Anyone who was negative, we pulled out immediately and put in isolation. So, you know, we thought we were probably in pretty good shape for at least the first couple of weeks. You know, some of it is that there was a small number of students who immediately upon hitting campus decided they were going to go party and they were not taking any of the health protocols seriously. And of course, people were coming in from around the state. Not everyone in some of the off-campus places got the sort of testing that all the dorm residents did. And, um, you know, we almost surely had a couple of super spreader events. On top of that, the county was not enforcing the county health protocols in the bars right next to campus at that point. They had been earlier in the summer, and I think things had gotten a little laxer, and that didn't help us either. So, you know, we saw this spike almost immediately, again, because we were doing more extensive testing and acted as aggressively as we could have. We restricted student movements for the next two weeks. We quarantined our two largest dorms, which where this had been particularly virulent. We moved to two weeks of online only learning. And we also quarantined a number of fraternities and sororities and said, look, you know, if we don't beat this, you know, everyone, we're, we're closing down campuses and sending everyone the dorms home. This all depends on you and your behavior. Um, we're gonna do everything we can to help that. And it worked. We've now had more than three weeks of much lower numbers. We're below the county. We're far below the state. As you know, the state is exploding. And, you know, those two weeks did what we wanted it to do. Great. I want to uh, ask my uh, partner, co-host in this enterprise, Andrew Schwartz, to jump in. Thank you, Stephen. Chancellor, it's such an honor to have you with us here. And congratulations on your success in bringing the numbers down. Uh, you know, I'm just reading the reports that the seven-day combined average of cases at University of Wisconsin-Madison is currently 17. Just four weeks ago, it was 161. The university had hit its peak with 404 cases, you know, a few weeks ago. So you really have brought it down considerably. How do you think it was possible to make such a change in so short a period of time? Well, you know, the, the two-week pause, right, saying, you know, everyone's basically stay where you are except for absolutely essential trips outside and then quarantining some other groups were obviously important. The issue is what, what made us believe we could keep it down or we wouldn't spike again, right? And so when we reopened, we were doing a number of things differently. First and probably most important is that we had more testing capacity than we did at the beginning of the semester. We were opening our own testing lab. It was not fully open at the beginning of the semester. Our tests were all being outsourced to another location. And as our own testing location came online, that greatly expanded our testing ability. So we're now testing people in the dorms twice as frequently as we were originally. We have the ability to come in and if we see a spike happening somewhere, we can basically test everyone in that facility, whether it's a fraternity or sorority or one of our dorms, pull everyone out, come back two days later, test them all again, pull out any positive infections, really keep control over what's happening. And partly because we're doing most of our own testing at this point, we're also getting turnaround in under 24 hours. So we know quite quickly who is infectious and who isn't. All of that, I think, has helped. 
And I will note that I do think that students are taking it more seriously, and you can see that around campus. You know, that two-week quarantine took everyone, they, they, they paid attention. And um, we've been very clear about our disciplinary measures. And the threat of having to go home, I guess, right, right? Right, And, you know, we've disciplined a whole number of students. We've been very clear about that. That word is getting out. And, you know, the county also has, you know, been enforcing its health procedures in a lot of the drinking establishments near campus, and that helps too. Now, you've emphasized, you know, over this period that there's been a lot of emotion, obviously. There's been anger, anxiety, division, sadness. Can you explain to us and tell us what this has really been like? I mean, there's just been such division in the state, and there's even been division on campus and in in your community in Madison. Can you tell us what that's been like? So, you know, it's a moment in time where no matter what you do, people are going to be angry. You know, we have a very divided campus. We have faculty who do not want to teach in person, and we have faculty who long to be in the classroom as much as they can. We have students who are very wary of being in an in-person classroom and students who really want as many in-person classes as possible. And so we're doing this hybrid model. And, um, you know, some of our classes are in person, some aren't. Almost all students should be able to pick and choose. You know, virtually all our faculty have been able to negotiate which, what the modality is by which they're teaching. But, you know, what I've learned, whether it's simply related to COVID, whether it's related to budget, whether it's related to some of the racial justice issues is, you know, people out there are dealing with a lot of uncertainty, a lot of change, a lot of anxiety around all of these issues. And the result of that is that tips into anger very quickly, you know, and, 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 you know, the reaction that I've had with our senior staff is we simply have to make the best decisions we can. We've got to be nimble. We've got to be able to change our minds if the data comes in differently. But then we have to be consistent and, you know, communicate, communicate, communicate about what we did and why we did it. And um, try to be consistent about that over time as well. Is that going to keep people from being angry at us? And, and protesting and objecting. No, it's not on a university campus. But, you know, we need to communicate to as many people as possible about what we're doing and why we're doing it and try to hold the middle. I imagine one of the things that you're striving to do is how to turn the corner on this situation to restore some sense of shared common purpose and community in this in the midst of all of this, where you described it's people are angry, they're anxious, there's huge uncertainty. They're frustrated. They've never faced a situation like this. They're exhausted and fatigued and they're lashing out. And so what works, do you think, in the midst of that drama? And you're not alone. This is We're seeing this all over the country on campuses. And, you know, this very divisive election is not helping that either. That adds to a lot of the anger yes. also. You know, so... You know, the good thing about being on campus is you've got an institution that has a history and a reputation, and you can draw on that to a certain extent. A lot of the things that pull us together are not happening this fall, right? You know, we're not, you know, Bucky and the Bucky is our mascot, the band, you know, the pep squad, they're not out there. We don't have some of the big student gatherings that we would always have. So you've got to recreate as much of that as you can virtually or, you know, in smaller groups and you know, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. You know, part of my reaction is it's just going to be hard to create that sense of common purpose until we are through this. 
But, you know, we're doing what we can to basically integrate a whole group of new freshmen into what it means to be a Badger, what it's like to be on campus. One of the things I'm explicitly doing whenever I talk to the campus community or to our alumni is, you know, start not with COVID or with the budget problems or with the uh, racial justice issues, but to start with the good news on campus, of which there is always good news on a campus like ours. So, you know, we just got our uh, graduation rates from last spring. And, you know, we have the highest ever six-year graduation rate we've ever seen. We're in the top 10 of public schools in graduation rates, and we even moved up another percentage point in our own. It's 88.5%. You know, that's great news. And it's a sign of the quality of our faculty, of our staff, of our students. And, you know, you need to tell people that. You need to make them proud of being where they are and handling the challenges they're handling and reaffirm their desire to be part of that institution. It's more important now than ever. And it's, it's really hard right now to make that happen at times. I've got to ask you about something that you're probably really sick about talking about, but I know as a big source of pride at the university, I got to ask you about football. So how did you come to the decision to decide to play and what role is that having among your students, your alumni, the community? Is it making people feel good? Are people nervous? What, what's what's happening with that? Yeah, so I've said this, I spent more time on football in the last two months than I think in my previous seven years in this job. You know, so in the <laughs> middle of August, the board of the Big Ten, that's the presidents and chancellors of the 14 Big Ten schools, let's not go into why they're 14 Big Ten, you know, decided to postpone any competition. And we did that because we were very concerned about um, not having in place the right protocols to handle some of the health concerns. Um, we did not have a common testing protocol. Different schools were doing different levels of testing. Some schools did not have contact tracing set up yet. Um, we just didn't think we could play a season um, without having to pull down games, without putting our students at risk. And, you know, there's this growing evidence on heart um, involvement of extreme athletes that was just beginning to come out, all very worrisome. So we postponed things. And then we put together a group of medical advisors of doctors from the various schools of medicine around the Big Ten. And that group met for a month to talk about some of these issues. And they came back to us in the middle of September with a set of recommendations and said, if you think you can do this, we believe that you can safely compete, not just in football, but in any of your sports. So as a result of that, we the Big Ten has contracted with a major national company to provide equipment and personnel and protocols at every school so that every one of our athletes, when they're in the competitive season, the first thing they do when they arrive in the morning is they get tested with a rapid test that will give them results within 15 to 30 minutes and nothing else happens until they test negative. And, you know, then they go into the day and, you know, if everyone is tested every day, it means you're, you know, you're not going to have, you know, much proliferation of infection. You're going to find people almost immediately. And we believe that allows you then to clean, to play a clean game and to do some clean practice that day to combine with, as I noted earlier, all the other health protocols you've got to be following. So we're now in practice season. Um, our competition starts on October 23rd or 24th. And, you know, I very much hope that, you know, we've, we, we are doing more extensive testing, more extensive health protocols than any other of the college leagues right now. And I feel good about that. I feel like our students can safely play and compete. And there's a whole lot of other things I could talk about in those protocols, but they're, they're pretty thorough. The concern, of course, is, you know, so now you're playing the game. What does that mean for the community? 
right? And on the one hand, when we pulled this down, you know, we got whomped by a group of people who are very unhappy about that. And now that we've reinstated play, we've got whomped by the other half of the people. You say everyone's, there's always someone unhappy these days. And um, validly concerned about what this means for the community because Big Ten games, you know, are, are big events in town. So um, we've all agreed across the Big Ten, no fans in the stadium. You know, there is no mascots, there's no parade, there's no pep squad, there is nothing going on in the stadium except players, teams, a central personnel, and some media, you know, who have to watch it. We're not even allowing the parents in, in our first game at Wisconsin, partly because the numbers are so high around the state, we don't want people traveling. Um, and then we are taking all the measures we can um, to prevent the partying that might otherwise go on. So we've told all of our alums, Every game is an away game. Don't even think about coming to Madison. There's no game day events. There is no tailgating. We will ticket you if we find you tailgating in a parking lot. You know, we're saying to our students and our student athletes, I think are gonna help reinforce this message. Um, you know, yeah, watch the game, but watch the game with your pot of friends. Don't violate any county health provisions. Don't put yourself at risk of either illness or of, of discipline. And, um, you know, enjoy the game with a smaller group this this year. And we're really pushing that message. And you know, we'll see on the 23rd and 24th of October across the Big Ten um, how well that works. But I'm cautiously optimistic that, you know, this message has gotten out to our students. It's gotten out to our community. Everyone's going to realize this is just a different year and people should watch these games in different ways. Well, you know, as a father of a college football player, I, I wish you all the best and really hope that people do take heed of what you're saying and watch it with their pods, watch it in their cohort and stay away from public spaces and stay away from the bars and the tailgates and just let let the players play and, and let this happen and enjoy it for what it is this year. I'd like to ask you a little bit about the broader environment. I mean, Wisconsin's environment is awfully complicated and difficult. You've alluded to the fact that the state is a red is in a red zone. There were 2,500 cases on seven-day average in Wisconsin in the, in the last seven days. And it's extraordinary. And you're, in terms of a political polarization in the midst of this national electoral cycle, very deep divide within Wisconsin. And, and there's been a deepening clash between the governor, the legislature, and county executives have been clashing with sheriffs and the Tavern League around those measures. And you've had a confrontation very much in the public eye between yourself and Dane County leadership. How does all of that turbulence affect your ability to try and stabilize the university? Yeah, well, you know, it's very unfortunate, not just in Wisconsin, but across the country, that issues around a health pandemic have become so politicized. And, you know, Wisconsin, like other parts of the country, have split somewhat on how one should respond to this pandemic. So the legislative leadership, which is Republican, have been arguing with our governor, who is Democrat, about many of the things he's tried to implement, such as mask mandates. And, you know, that's sort of picked up across the state. And if you go to rural Wisconsin, it's a little hard sometimes to tell there's a pandemic. Whereas if you're in Madison, you know, most people are wearing masks. It's a different place. So this recent spike in cases in the state has occurred much more in the outstate areas. Um, earlier, back in April and May, um, the majority of cases were in the Milwaukee area or even in Madison, and they're now well below the state average. And these cases are occurring particularly in the Northeast and over on the Western part of the state in smaller towns. 
And, you know, that partly reflects, again, the lack of health protocols that were being enforced in those areas. You know, I'm, I'm very worried about it because, you know, people are saying, well, the problem here is with universities, these students are going to go out and cause um, infections in the community. I'm worried about just the opposite. Um, the rest of the state is going to cause infections at my university. And I'm trying to suggest that our staff and faculty and students should not travel around the state right now because um, that will only endanger our our broader Madison community as well as our campus community. So, you know, it creates all sorts of interesting, you know, health and behavioral issues. Within the city, we've had this very interesting and very unfortunate debate with the county executive who basically wanted the university to close and has asked us to send our students home and go entirely online. Now, I have kept responding to him from the very beginning is, I can't do that. The majority, the vast majority of my students live in the community. They live in off-campus housing. And um, even if I had no freshmen on campus and all of my classes were online, I can tell you I'd have 35,000 students in town. And the reason for that is last March, when all universities closed down, we had no idea what was coming with this pandemic. You know, everyone went home. They stayed in their bedrooms and the basements with their parents, and they finished the semester. But they didn't have a great time. And when the semester started this year, whether online or not, they wanted to be with their friends and they wanted to be in Madison and they took up their housing in Madison. And, you know, I've got lots and lots of students who are online only. They're not at home. They're in Madison in their campus apartments. Um, and indeed, as we've tried to empty the dorms a little bit and de-densify them and encourage people to, you know, go back to your permanent residence, we found half of the people leaving the dorms are moving into apartments in town, not going back to their parents' house. So the issue here is not, should the university close or not? And of course, these students live in town. They vote in town. They support the town's businesses. The issue is that we and the county and the city need to be working together now more than we ever have before. And the conflict with the county executive and the county board is particularly unfortunate in that light because we need each other to be working cooperatively. And we've really tried hard to work cooperatively with the county health group. But I'm really quite sad about the fact that I've not been able to work cooperatively with the county executive in the last several months. Do you think that's going to have lasting bitterness and, and recriminations, or is that reparable? You know, I don't know. The university is such a central and important part of town that I, I'm hoping that when this goes away, that will go away as well. And, you know, I, I you know, it's, it's the type of thing you just got to put behind you and move forward. Yeah. Now, the, in terms of the pandemic, there's now a, you know, as we're now in a, the beginning of winter, early stages, late fall, early winter, the surge that's been predicted across the country as winter comes in, as people move indoors, as the transmission accelerates in the colder weather, and we're operating on a high baseline, as we talked about, you know, 3,000, 2,500 case, case count across the state. It looks dangerous for the next, in this next period. Um, how are you thinking about that in terms of, I know students are expected to break and go home at Thanksgiving, come back in the early part of the winter, but how are you thinking about the surge? It looks to me like you've made substantial progress in restabilizing, but it's still vulnerable to some shocks. You know, we're taking this day by day as we have to. One of the things we have done, as you noted, is um, we are 
moving completely online after Thanksgiving. We do not want students to go home around the country and then come back to Madison for the last two weeks of classes. That strikes me, you know, even when we were planning last summer, given the, what the weather was going to be like, um, we just didn't want to take that risk. So we are asking students who go home at Thanksgiving to stay at whatever home they're going to, their permanent residence, and complete the semester there. If they absolutely have to come back, we're going to ask all of them to test and to really monitor their symptoms and even isolate until they're sure that um, it is safe for them to be out and about in the community. But my hope is that many students at that point will decide to stay home both Thanksgiving and then through the next coming holidays. We are still in the midst of planning for spring semester and for what will happen. We, we've, post, we've eliminated spring break, not everyone's happy about that, so that we can start a week later um, and again, then we don't have a week where everyone goes away and comes back. So we're going to run straight through spring semester with whoever's there in town. Um, we are really looking at ways to substantially increase our testing even further. And the gold standard for testing right now is uh, at campuses like ours is to try to test everybody in the community, you know, all staff, all faculty, all students twice a week. And um, we're working towards that goal. Um, we're not there yet, but we think we can get there. And if we can get there, then I think reopening, again, with some form of hybrid instruction and involvement in campus is going to be the right way to go. I should say, which I haven't said, but it was one really important piece of this is both I, my provost, a number of our senior leaders just believe that to the extent we can have some in-person classes, that's really important. It's particularly important for our freshmen for whom you know, getting to know some faculty face-to-face, -face, meeting a few or more of their fellow students face-to-face, -face, even if it's six and eight feet, feet apart. Those sorts of conversations and discussions you have in person, even behind masks, and there's good research on this, are different than the conversations you have when you're all looking at little squares. They're much more spontaneous. They're, they're, they're just different and they're better along a variety of dimensions. So if there is any way that we can continue some in-person classes in the spring, we're going to try to do so. But Again, we've got to be guided by the data. We've got to see what happens in the country and in Wisconsin at that point in time. May I ask you one other question as you prepare for the winter? Are you expanding quarantine facility and isolation facilities? We arranged for quite expansive quarantine and isolation facilities before the semester started this spring. And even with the big spike, we did not run out of those. Um, I think we were, we, we did more than almost any other school, partly because we were just looking forward and saying, we don't know what we need. We'd rather be overprepared than underprepared. So we've got quite a bit of isolation quarantine facilities available. Now we use those for our students who are in the dorms, our students who have housing elsewhere around town, which is the majority of our students, um, we expect to isolate at home. There've been a few places where we've allowed students to use our, our facilities who aren't in the dorms, but those are unusual cases where there just wasn't another isolation option for them. Chancellor, one of the things we, we think about a lot is you know, the future of certain industries. And certainly we think about the future of education. What lessons have you learned and, and what are you thinking about the future of education and the future of the University of Wisconsin-Madison specifically when it comes to you know, your hybrid model, long-term changes in terms of technology and teaching, what it takes to guarantee the financial resilience of the university and you know, things like, you know, foreign students, in-state versus out-of-state students? What, how are you thinking about the future of the university and the future of education? So let me start by making one comment, which is that the value of residential education at a high-quality school is not going away. 
And I think of nothing else, this, this year is proving exactly how much people miss the sort of things that a residential education can provide and that are just less available right now. And that's not just the in-person classes and the sort of discussions that take place there, but anyone who was around campus will say more than half the learning that goes on takes place outside classrooms. It's, it, you know, being in leadership in student organizations. It's, you know, doing volunteer work around the community. It's going um, on international trips. It's, you know, late night conversations with your friends in your apartment or in your dorm room. And um, those things require interactions between people face to face for folks to have that experience and to learn from it and to grow with it. So I'm a very strong believer that the core of what we are at the University of Wisconsin, which is a very high quality residential school, that is going to continue to be valued. Now, if the question is what's going to change, you know, there clearly are things that are going to change. And, you know, all of our faculty have gotten a crash course and using all sorts of technologies that a substantial number of them had never used before. You know, not all of that has been wildly successful, but um, they've learned a whole number of things about how to use certain types of remote teaching opportunities. And I very much hope, and this is a conversation that, you know, we're planning to have with our faculty over this winter, uh, that many of them will change some of their teaching methods and really think hard about in the small amount of time that you have face-to-face -face with your students, how do you most effectively use that for active learning and engaging your students? And then how can you use these technologies to transmit the information that they can pick up on their own? So I do think there's going to be some real changes in how teaching unfolds, and particularly in, in some areas where you know, the advantages of these technologies, you know, faculty are learning, they're very real. The other thing that, you know, clearly is going to change around a place like Wisconsin is some of the ways we do work. We're a state agency within the state of Wisconsin. Telework was not something that was very much allowed. Well, you know, we've learned a lot about telework. And there's some places where it turns out people are as productive, if not more productive, while working from home. There's some places where they're not. And we're clearly going to be putting together a very different telework set of policies, more people using telework. That in turn opens up, of course, some space constraints that we've been under and you know, allows us to reuse space somewhat differently if not everyone needs their own office full time. And all of this um, experience with Zoom and WebEx and uh, other technologies, of course, mean that meetings are gonna be different. It's, there is a value to meeting face-to-face. -face. You wanna do some of that, but you know, Twice a week, you don't need everyone to walk across campus to show up at one place. You, you could have some of those meetings online. You could do some of your advising online. Telehealth, I think, is going to continue. You know, it's not going to be the only thing we offer, but we are going to be offering it. We weren't before. Um, so, you know, changing our operations, I think, is as important as changing our education and finding ways to be better as we come out of this and, you know, operate better, teach better, be a stronger institution. That's the goal. Do you see yourself doing partnerships with technology companies to increase the fidelity of online education, increase the fidelity of, you know, teaching using Zoom and WebEx and things like that? You know, it's an interesting question. We have not been engaged with those conversations with any companies. I know that there are places doing some of that research and talking about sort of what are the new, what, what are the new technologies, what are going to be the new startups that are going to come in and make this much better than it is right now? I would certainly hope that our faculty, our students might be engaged in some of that. That's not something we've thought about very explicitly. You know, people are suggesting that New York City and other major metropolitan areas are going to become smaller by definition for a bunch of reasons in the, in the COVID period and post-COVID. 
Do you think the large public institutions like UW, Madison, may become smaller? No, I, I absolutely don't. For two reasons, we we have we have a three part mission: education, research, and outreach. For both of those first two, if anything, the demand is growing for them. You know, the demand for people to have high quality education, to have the skills that are needed to compete in a 21st century economy. You know, that's not just our undergraduate programs, but our master's and our PhD programs. You know, one of the things we're working hard to do is expand our online professional masters. We had 25 such programs. I open another few years, we're going to have 50 plus. And, you know, that that that's that's going to increase our size. There may be fewer students. I don't know that our numbers of students on campus are going to be smaller, but we're going to have more students off campus. And I'd say the same thing about research, the demand. You know, if, if this pandemic has not indicated the value of basic scientific research to this country, I don't know what will. And um, that basic scientific research, by and large, takes place on university campuses. And, you know, we're very involved with a number of the, um, the tests that are being done right now on vaccines and on different types of treatments and, you know, exploring and describing this coronavirus thing and how it operates. So, you know, I, I don't see the demand for either our education or our research side declining. And I don't think the university is going to shrink as a result. Thank you. I was very struck by your recent very bold statement. We are a white institution in a very white state and have to work harder to do better with racial justice challenges, which have really surged forward in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. Um, has COVID-19 forced a reckoning of a sort, opened the door to fundamental change within UW? Well, I mean, if we're talking about the issues of diversity and racial justice, you know, I, I think COVID-19 actually has not been very central to that in some ways. The events that have been happening around the country have been much more central to really galvanizing a whole new movement, as you know. And it's not that there wasn't a movement out there, but it's an even stronger movement and, you know, more organized, more intense, more focused. And that's obviously come to our campus as well. Um, you know, we have to respond to that. And we, you know, we're, we're not Florida and Texas and California, which are basically, you know, majority minority states. You know, we, we, we are a Scandinavian German state and it shows when you walk around the state. So we have to work harder, the diversity issue. I'm very proud of the fact that we have the highest share of, in our freshman class of students from underrepresented communities that we've ever had were 13.5%. Now that's very low compared to California, but it's very high compared to where we've been and where the state of Wisconsin is. We That's not by chance. That's a strategy that we've been working on. And, you know, similar, we've been doing a number of things that have been effective at trying to diversify our faculty. We just need to keep working at this. It's one of those things that you don't say, well, we've got a five-year plan and then we're done. You know, this is one where we have to build it into our DNA that we are constantly aware of issues of diversity and of racism, of inclusion, and um, have to be working on those issues in the long term. You know, and if we solve one problem tomorrow, which we may or may not, um, there'll be other problems that come along that we then have to work on next. Thank you. We try to close each of these podcasts with the question of what gives you the greatest hope and strength in this very difficult period, this very fragile period. Well, what gives you the greatest hope and strength? Well, you know, the thing that always gives me the best hope in anywhere, which is one reason I love being on college campuses, are the students and the innovative faculty. You know, just these are wonderful people to be around. They are curious. They're hardworking. Um, they're ready to jump in with both feet to interesting issues, um, you know, in different ways between the faculty and the students. But, you know, it just it makes campuses fun places to be. And in times like this, 
you know, this reminds you of, you know, what a university is about and why we need to preserve this and get it back on track. Uh, the University of Wisconsin has been around for 172 years, I believe. You know, we're in this for the long run. Like most universities, we're some of the longest lived institutions um, in the world. And, you know, we're going to be in this for another 172 years. Um, this will be a blip. And the question is, do we come out of it stronger or weaker? Not will we survive, but, you know, how will we behave upon our survival? And it's on us to come out stronger. Thank you so much for being with us today and sharing so candidly and honestly your thoughts about all these different issues. And we wish you the very best heading towards Thanksgiving and the winter and, and the second semester, successful second semester. Well, thank you, Steve. I, this has been a fun conversation. I appreciate it. We really do, Chancellor. Go Badgers. Go Badgers. Go Badgers.